Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Well, it's my privilege to be bringing God's word to you this morning. Um, before I, we get into the text, um, can we just bow for a word of prayer, please? Father, we thank you for uh, the word that you have given us. We pray, Lord, that as we uh, get back into Titus this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to see um, clearly what you desire for us as a church, uh, for us as individuals. And God, give us uh, soft hearts that we might uh, respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll be continuing in Titus chapter 2 this morning with a focus on verses 3 and 5. And we don't have a PowerPoint uh, today, but you can follow along with the outline in your, in your bulletins. So back several months ago, when the men, of Simeon, the men in the Simeon Trust group was studying through t Titus chapter 2 and assigning our preaching passages for this portion, Somehow, it was decided that I should take on the topic of women's discipleship. So there were some play playful laughs exchanged because I secretly think that they conspired to do this to me. So my first reaction was, great, what do I know about this topic? But I soon realized that just because I'm not a woman doesn't mean I have to be clueless about what God's word says about women and the specific instruction given to them. So as I started to dig into Titus 2 and related texts, it turns out that it isn't such a foreign subject. My wife, Tia, has been an excellent resource in learning about and deepening my understanding of women's discipleship because I really see aspects of it in her life, whether it's that she's, been ben she's benefited from other faithful women in her life or that she's reaching out to younger girls. 
I see her aspiring to grow in her understanding of what it means to be a woman. Not to mention that she has a mini library of resources on our bookshelf at home. And honestly, there's books there that I thought I would never touch. But God has a way of expanding my horizons. I've picked up books that I didn't know we even, that, we, that we had. I just needed to be careful while reading one particular book called Damsels in, in Distress while I was riding the BART to work. Uh, uh, but of course, I was really discreet about it, like hiding the cover. Last week, um, Albert provided a flyover of verses 1 through 10, and Ed explained how the passage speaks to the men in our church. Today, I have the privilege of focusing on discipleship as it relates to the women. So why have we devoted two separate messages to men's discipleship and women's discipleship? Why don't I just simply take Ed's manuscript and scratch out all the men and replace it with the word women? Well, men and women are fundamentally different, and this traces back to the creation order where God created man and women equal in essence, meaning that they're both equally valuable in God's eyes, but different in function and roles. And in living, as we well know, men and women face different issues, temptations, and struggles in their path of sanctification. As a man, I've thought critically about and studied disciplines unique to men, but I haven't given much attention to the unique differences to women. So how am I supposed to help my wife in particular grow as a woman of the word if I don't know what the Bible says about it? For, for you, it might be a mother or a sister or a friend even. The point is that we all need to understand what the Bible says about women discipling women. And while our text today seems to address only the women, God's word needs to be heeded by all. So my challenge throughout this message today will be to help all of us draw a connection to the text. Author J. Ligon Duncan writes in a book about women's ministry, quote, the subject of this book is not women, it is the church of the Lord Jesus. Though the focus of the book is one specific area of the church's ministry, a biblical understanding of the church acknowledges that no part stands alone. A women's ministry is one component of the total life and work of a local church, end quote. So let's look at the topic of women's discipleship with this bigger picture perspective so that we're not only concerned about just the women, but about how, but about how a women's ministry is supportive of and also supported by other ministries within the church. And if you've been a regular attender with us at Gateway, you know we've spent the last several months in the book of Ephesians, where we studied some key passages concerning the life and function of the church. And just a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 4, where Paul describes the church being equipped for the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and we won't turn there for the sake of time, but the passage describes the gifts that God has given to the church for the building up of the body of Christ to mature manhood and growing up in every way into Christ. So there's serious growth taking place in the life of a healthy church. So we've been seeing in Titus 2 that the church is the context within which God has designed for growth to take place. This is what John Calvin wrote of the church. Quote, the church is the mother of all the godly, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also 
that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. Among women, we might call this spiritual mothering. Many here have had the recent experience of new motherhood. I've experienced a sort of secondhand motherhood, but mothers know the extent of nurture, care, and protection that newborns need. Titus 2 is not just about a biological connection, though. It's about a relationship between older and younger women built on a common salvation and traveling together on the path of progressive sanctification. And we see an example of this in the opening of Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, as Paul describes the generational faithfulness between, between Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, and finally how that faith continued to be true in Timothy. So back here in the book of Titus, recall that we're on the island of Crete, where Paul was leaving Titus to pastor a young church planted in the middle of an unchurched and very ungodly culture. So as Paul was penning this letter, he might have been asking himself, what sort of men and women does this church need? In chapter 2, Paul instructs Titus to raise up women who would be godly examples, distinct from the culture surrounding them, to model spiritual maturity and to mentor younger women. Let's look at verses 3 and five, three to 5 again. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 3 deals with older women evidencing or exemplifying God's work. And that's the first point, first by modeling. The first part of this passage dealing with women's discipleship addresses older women in the church. Last week, we had Ed speak on the topic of discipleship between men in the church. And as much as women are to be distinct and different from men, Paul writes in verse 2 that older women are to be like older men in this regard. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. In other words, these are characteristics that ought to be true of any godly believer, men and women alike. Paul implies here that spiritual maturity or sanctification generally comes with age. And it's a law that we often see in nature. Like a young tree sapling is not expected to bear fruit like a mature tree. My father-in-law has a mature persimmon tree in his front yard. And the past two years around Thanksgiving time, I've had the privilege of helping collect the fruit, or actually Tia was in the tree throwing down the fruit, so I was catching it. <laughs> a single mature tree can produce over 300 pounds of persimmon fruit in one season, which is pretty amazing. Psalm 92, 14 says of the righteous, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So back in our text, the fruit of a mature older woman is, is described in verse 3. It says that a mature woman is reverent in behavior, meaning she conducts herself in a way that befits a holy person or thing. She is not a slanderer, using her, using her words for harm, but for building up and speaking truth. She's not a slave to wine or other controlling substance, which may have been found common among the women in Crete, but she has learned to be self-controlled. Verse 3 describes the mature woman or you might also say the truly beautiful woman. Scripture describes the beautiful woman in much the same way that it describes the mature woman. 
Today, there's all manner of distortions of what beauty is, but a portrait of true beauty is found throughout Scripture. So I want to take some time to, to turn to some passages that give us a fuller picture of what true beauty means in a woman. Let's first go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Let's go to Proverbs 31. And read verse 30. Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We'll be coming back to Proverbs 31 in a bit, um, but for now I just want to focus on that one verse. So true beauty is displayed in godly maturity. So we've seen how older women are to model maturity. The next part of verse 3 in Titus 2 deals with the idea of mentoring, which is accomplished through teaching and training of younger women. And as we've seen from the beginning of our study in Titus, the transferring of sound doctrine is foundational to the health of the church, including the discipleship that occurs between women. Chapter 2 begins with Paul's instruction to teach what accords with sound doctrine, and it concludes in verse 15 with declare these things. To repeat something that we've already seen in, in past uh, messages, sound doctrine can be understood as healthy teaching that leads to a biblical perspective on all areas of life. So Paul is concerned with teaching that results in a right way to live, in this case for women and the many issues that they face. Reading this passage reminds me of something that my wife has told me. She often says that in her college years, she experienced tremendous spiritual growth a part of which can, can be related, related back to the relationships that she built with older women. And I'm a huge beneficiary of the, invest, of the investment that several older godly women made in her, and one in particular named Ginny. I asked Tia to describe how Ginny mentored her, and this is what she said. Even though she always had work to do, she creatively made time for me, letting me jo just join in on life as alongside her as she cooked dinner ironed her husband's shirts, or cared for her kids, and just talking to her. There were formal times of talking to her and asking questions, but the majority of it was informal. She invited me into her life and joined me in mine, and I wasn't the only girl that she made time for. And to that I say, thank you, Ginny. I probably have things to thank her for that I don't even know about. And here at Gateway, we're, we're really blessed to have women who have a passion for God's word, We've had several women's groups meet for Bible study or to read a book together. And as a young church, we're still growing in our scope of what we formally call the women's ministry. But we can see from the text that effective modeling and mentoring are the building blocks of ministry among women. So teach the women, young women, in regards to truth. That brings us to the beginning of the next verse, verse 4. And so train the young women. So now we're going to see younger women embracing God's design for them. Let's see verses 4 and 5. 
And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. So with the charge to older women to be models and mentors, Paul now goes on to address the younger women, specifically young wives and mothers in verse 4. Now for the ladies, before you decide whether you fit into the camp of the older or the younger, or before you decide which one you would like to fit into, realize that this is not necessarily an either-or situation. All women are older relative to some and younger relative to others. So you can really be in, in both camps at any given time. We might have a 70-year-old retiree who's te teaching a 50-year-old professional, who's mentoring a 30-year-old mom, who's raising a 5-year-old daughter. So that's what it might look like. Verse 4 essentially describes a training regimen for young women. First, in the area of character development, and secondly, training in the domestic sphere. Verse 4 is obviously directed towards married women, but this is not saying that a, a woman needs to be married and have children to grow towards maturity. Scripture does affirm singleness as a gift, and the character qualities we see in verse 4 and following are descriptive of all godly women. And if you're a younger lady here with us today who desires marriage and motherhood in your future, this might be a verse that you read with, with the view that someday, God willing, you'll need instruction and support in these areas. So first, we'll look at the area of character. Young women are to be trained in the same character qualities that are to be modeled by the older women that we saw in verse 3. So what does this tell us? Well, first, that training in character development is only effective when the traits are properly modeled by the mentor. Secondly, we can see from this that the training regimen is not simply about what young women must, what, what they must do, but what they must become. Earlier, we saw that godly feminine qualities are nurtured within her spirit. The difference is internal character transformation that results in external action versus simply learning to conform to a set of rules. We shouldn't approach this particular part of scripture with a checklist mentality, in other words. And again, this is why sound doctrine is foundational, because it fosters inward transformation that results in an outward change. Verse 5 says that younger women are to be trained to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. Let's think about all the aspects in a pagan culture, in Crete, or even in our modern culture, that would work against self-control, purity, and kindness. And you'll begin to understand why Paul prescribes training in these specific areas. Last week, Albert referred to this as the doctrine of the world. Young ladies in our culture today are drawn to believe that they need, about, need, they, that they need to find meaning in a relationship that maybe is acceptable to be emotionally and physically entangled with someone that they feel attached to, and that, that is normal and acceptable to be self-promoting and self-absorbed. Whatever it takes to be successful, in other words, this is what the world teaches. The next part that we see is the unique calling for women, in particular for wives and mothers. A wife is to love her husband and children. And it might seem obvious to state this, but for the wives and mothers, this is an invitation to test your understanding of what it means to truly love those who are closest to you. Love is not a way that you feel towards someone as much as, as it is a willful decision to care for, sacrifice for, and to walk through hard times with someone. Tia and Ian and I have been calling ourselves a family 
for just over, a little over a year now. And within the short time, I've known the joys of marriage and fatherhood, but family life is also sprinkled with conflict, tiredness, and frustration. So when the, when the fuzziness of love is absent, how can we still love our families? Well, the gospel gives us hope. And according to this passage, a young woman is called to prioritize serving her household under the loving authority of her husband. It's clear from scripture that keeping the home or managing a household is a high priority that's given to women. We just saw that women are called to love their husbands and children. Home is where family life, ta family life takes place. The challenge is that we're never just committed to a single role. While we have mouths to feed and bills to pay and children who need love and discipline, we still have dreams and passions that we want to pursue. However, it comes to a question of priority. And this is not saying to give up on your dreams. We actually need to dream really big for God. In this area, author Carolyn McCauley encourages young women to consider the whole span of life with respect to their talents, roles, and responsibilities that God has given, given them, and not to be so fixated on taking everything on at once. For example, having children may require a major shift in a, in a woman's career, but it would be wise to think about the next steps, about how things might change once the children are in school or gone to college. Also, this passage will apply differently to each unique situation. For example, the unmarried woman or the single mom who'll have to consider how to be faithful to their calling as women. Let's consider two examples from scripture that illustrate a diligent woman's spirit. In Acts 16, we read about a businesswoman named Lydia. Paul and Silas met her on their first missionary journey into Europe. And Lydia actually became the first European convert recorded in scripture. And what we know about Lydia is that she was a seller of purple dye and fabric, which, is a, which was a very valuable commodity in her time. Through the successful establishment of her business and home base, she was in a position to welcome traveling missionaries, Paul and Silas, into her home. Lydia, or God, used her resources and her gift of hospitality to advance the gospel in Europe. What an incredible way to be used by God. Let's go back to Proverbs 31, which we saw earlier. And, we, and here we have a picture of wisdom personified as a woman. A large portion of the proverb is actually devoted to describing her productivity and her fruitfulness. So in Proverbs 31, let's read together verses 13 to 19. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands, hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. So in short, Paul is not issuing an edict about the where or the what of women's work. Rather, it's an instruction for women to be productive in a wise and weighted manner in light of God's calling. Work done unto the Lord is a blessing from God. 
and no less for the women. So going back to Titus, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say that married younger women are to be trained in submissiveness. Now, does this mean that women are different from men? Yes. But does it mean that they are less valuable than men? Definitely not. God created man and woman equal in essence, but distinct in function. This goes back to our first ancestors, Adam and Eve. Eve was made to be Adam's helper, one who was suitable and loyal to her husband. In today's reading, this can sound discriminating against women. And in this area of submission to male headship, there's tremendous pressure from our culture to construe this submission as subservience. But to be submissive does not mean to be subservient, nor is it intended to restrain women. A wife's submission carries with it an affirmation of her husband's loving authority and yielding to support his leadership that's given to him by God, which frees her to carry out her design and purpose. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verses 22 to 25. Ephesians 5:22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as it relates to homemaking, child rearing, and the marriage covenant, the best that the world can offer is practical advice or a whatever works approach. But the disciple of Christ can have the confidence that God, our creator, has made man and women to embrace their design and pursue, pursue their calling with confidence. So finally, in the last part of our passage, we see that all women are to honor God's word. The last part of verse 5 brings into focus the purpose of women's discipleship in the church, that the word of God may not be, the, be reviled. In other words, women's discipleship is a means by which God's word is honored. When women embrace God's design for them and train each other up in true biblical womanhood, God is honored. Paul similar, similarly instructed Titus to be sound in life and doctrine so that the watching world would not be able to bring an accusation against him. Read verses uh, 7 and 8 of Titus 2. It says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The world wants to revile God's word, but in contrast, the church is called to uphold and honor God's word. Peter says the church is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, the church body, exist to put Christ's excellence on, and beauty on display. And one way that happens, as we saw in this passage, is through faithful discipleship between older and younger women. Faithful discipleship, however, comes at a cost of time, energy, and many times much more, as relationships often do. If today you're having trouble seeing the motive for making such sacrifices, remember it's he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world will, will revile or attack God's word by redefining womanhood into something of its own making. In our few verses, we saw that the world 
is waging a fierce battle in the areas of women's identity, women's roles, setting up expectations that women need to look a certain way or assert, th or, or assert themselves over men in certain ways. Older women, older mature women are desperately needed to counteract the influence of our culture and to raise up a new generation of older mature women. Discipleship through modeling and mentoring requires a significant investment in another's life, but we labor for an eternal harvest. We began with Paul's introduction to Titus in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older women are to be examples of maturity and to mentor younger women in their character and calling because of verse 5, so that God's word would not be reviled. Honoring the word of God is our starting point for discipleship as well as the end to which we aspire. Just a few weeks ago, uh, we had several of our Gateway ladies attend the Ladies' Day Away Conference at North Creek. And if you were here the Sunday following, we heard some reports about what they learned. At least one person recalled the role of generational discipleship and how it shaped her own path to know Christ and to love him. The church and all the individuals that make up the church have a role in passing on sound teaching to younger generations. So I stated at the beginning of my message that my challenge would be to make this more than a message for the women. So by way of summary and application, I want to conclude with a word for the women, the men, and for all of you, the church family. So first, to the older women. Exemplify the characteristics of mature womanhood. You have the benefit of years, but perhaps in your younger days, you experienced struggles in your marriage, motherhood, your ambition, or self-image. The voices coming from our culture on these issues are as loud as ever. And the last thing that our young ladies need is another magazine telling them they need to look or act a certain way. We need godly examples of beauty fleshing out Titus II. One day, our younger women will become the older women, and whether they'll be the type of women that resembles the godliness of the word or the worldliness of our culture is at least in part a matter of discipleship. To the younger women, elevate your understanding of womanhood. Know, that the, know what the Bible says about what it means to be a woman. Your identity and value doesn't lie in your accomplishments, your occupation, or even in your family. You are first created by and beloved of God. If you're married and have families, there's certainly a special place that God has called you to for this season. God is interested in using you, not only in this season, but through all phases of life. Young adulthood, singleness, dating, and perhaps someday mo marriage, motherhood, parenting, and even grandparenting. There's a scriptural call to honor God's design where you are. Seek wise counsel from older women who have walked through these seasons before you. Build relationships and share life with one another. Now to the men. Encourage women's discipleship. Men, if you're married, there's a clear call for you to enable Titus II to be true for your wife. Encourage you to share life with other godly women to seek their counsel. Realize that a good portion of a young woman's training has to do with her relationship with you. When we read, when we read about wives being submissive to their husbands, we should be asking ourselves, 
Am I helping her to submit joyfully? We can lead our wives by serving them like Christ did for us. Ephesians 5.25 again says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Peter 3.7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now to all of you at the church family, establish a foundation for women's ministry. Paul's instruction in this passage is directed first to a young pastor named Titus. The church's leadership and the church body have a significant role in affirming the unique roles, gifts, and struggles that women face and encouraging ministry among women. Let's recognize the different contexts where women are afforded the opportunity to build healthy, constructive relationships. It could be in a formal women's ministry, but it might also be informally during times of fellowship or at a home group. There's no set formula to do ministry, so its development will need to come with wisdom and through prayer. Now to close, I want to return to the idea that women's ministry is not just its own thing. That women's ministry is just one area of church life, though I hope we've seen that it's an area that deserves some purposeful thought and action. At the end of these 10 very practical verses in Titus 2, in which Paul addresses the men, the women, and workers in turn, Paul now sweeps all of these groups under one motivating and unifying statement in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, we belong to Christ. Whether you stand, wherever you stand, with respect to the women's ministries at Gateway, we pray that his active grace would be the fuel for your application. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your grace that transforms us, and we thank you for your word that instructs us in righteousness. We pray that your word would take root in the culture of Gateway and let it guide the way that we grow, not just in structures and programs, but in building genuine discipling relationships that reflect Christ's love in us and brings glory to you. Amen. Good morning. It's a lot hotter up here later on in the afternoon. All right. Um, my verses are uh, verse uh, 9 and 10 of Ch Titus chapter 2, so I'm going to read them again, even though um, Debbie had read them before. So... Um, it's uh, Titus chapter 2, 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, 
not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, uh, thus far, I know we've kind of gone over this, uh, Paul has instructed us on older men and women, as we talked about the women here, and uh, younger men and women, and now he comes to slaves and masters. And, um, you know, I'll point this out too, as Johnny had mentioned it, you know, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, right? And sound doctrine being sort of the teachings that are passed on by Christ's apostles, teaching that is meant to guard and guide the church, right? And he says, with, you know, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And, and what accords with sound doctrine is, how am I going to live out this doctrine that I've been taught? Paul is telling Titus and the slaves in the church in, in Crete, he says, you know what, uh, live your life as to draw attention to the saving power of God demonstrated through you. These two verses are uh, evangelistic. I mean, that's what they are. I don't think they're anything else other than that, but all true believers are expected to have their faith in Christ reflect in their conduct and to have their conduct affirm their faith. So, and, and I would go as far as to say that what you believe about God, whether you're a Christian or not, will be reflected in your conduct. And for our purposes this morning, you know, we're, we're going to actually make this application from slaves and masters to um, employees and supervisors, because we don't have any slaves and masters here at, at Gateway this morning. But, um, so that's what we're going to see. And what we're going to see is that this godly character that... Um, that, that uh, Paul is talking about here is the greatest evangelistic strategy in the workplace. A lot of us work, in fact, most of us work, and um, if you just think about how much time you spend at work during the week. I spend a lot of time at work. I mean, you can ask my wife, and um, the people that I work closest to see my ups and downs. Right, And uh, it would seem to make sense that the place where we spend most of our waking hours could be the place where we see the greatest potential in being an ambassador of Christ. Right, And of course, the converse is also true. Where we spend most of our waking hours could be the place where we could do the most damage to the reputation of Christ as well. Brennan Manning, I don't know what you think of Brennan Manning. He, he wrote some books that he said this, and it's also in a DC Talk song, so if anybody here listens to that, it says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the, the door and deny him by their lifestyle. Now, I, I don't know if it's the greatest single cause of atheism, but from this passage in Titus, we can see that they had the same problem, and it's and still with us, right? They had... Um, you know, why was Paul saying this uh, about, you know, to Titus about slaves? I mean, why did he single out older women and younger women? Why did he single out older men and younger men? You know, I think he was saying this because people in Crete said they knew God, but they were not living it out with their lives. And, and is that any different than today? Of people that you know that, that go to church or identify as, as Christians, maybe meaning they just celebrate Christmas and Easter, but are not living it by their lives. You know, and Paul is going to challenge us this morning in, in his letter to Titus is how to live godly lives by being obedient in everything. So your fill-ins here are going to be obedient in everything. 
and understanding the marks of a Christian worker and then knowing how, you're, how you make your life attractive with the gospel and then trusting ultimately that the salvation of your coworkers or bosses belong to the Lord. So the first fill-in, number one, is Paul says to be obedient in everything. He says this in verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. So I didn't mention this when I taught on verse 1 to 4, but let's define the term slave that Paul sort of sees here. Right? Paul isn't dealing with the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of slavery. Right? He accepts the relationship between slaves and masters as this is a part of life. And there are multiple verses in Scripture that talk about slaves and masters, and this is just one of many in the New Testament. But you know, just as a reminder, if you're new, this, you know, we have this sort of image of what slavery is like from sort of colonial America. And um, those practices don't necessarily sort of you know, parallel with what Paul is referring to here. Oh, thanks. Jim. <clears throat> so, granted, there were some slaves at the time that were horribly mistreated, and uh, we'll see that from another passage, but um, there were all types of slaves. There were apprentice slaves, indentured slaves, slaves in various levels of government, Slaves cut across many roles and responsibilities um, in the church and outside the church. But this is where we actually relate to it today as for our, our supervisors and the employees or how I would relate to it is what was common to all these people is they were all subject to, the per, to, to control of another person. Right? Most of us have a boss if we're not the, the boss. Right? Maybe um, you own your own business and and you are the coworker, and you are the worker, and your wife is the boss. I don't know, you know, somebody knows. <clears throat> so, <laughs> sounds like a good setup, doesn't it? <clears throat> um, but Paul says this. He says, "You need to obey your master, and arrange your gifts under the purposes of those people with proper authority, right? Even if they are unreasonable, right?" And that's the challenge. He says, "In everything," and we're going to see this again in verse ten. He said the godly example of a slave was meant to take away the argument that Christians were upsetting the stability of society, right, and inciting rebellion. So let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. So this is um, Peter, the apostle. Peter actually talking, he says, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. And he goes in this long thing about submission to authorities. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the empire as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Peter actually puts the servanthood as God being an authority here. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So there may be slaves here that actually were suffering or actually people in the church that were suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. You know, more than taking away from the gospel, their conduct was to make the gospel more appealing to their masters by their submission to their owners. And the other section is Colossians 3. If you'll look with me at Colossians 3. Verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, which is salvation, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Paul is really saying, hey, when you look at your boss, you shouldn't see the face of your supervisor. You should see the face of Christ. And knowing that you're saved for all eternity will allow you to be submissive in whatever you're asked to do. Now, um, you know, I'm in HR. So um, I know there are always exceptions to everything, right? So maybe there's an exception to here, right? Maybe it's not in everything we need to be submissive to. And you may be thinking, um, you know, Matt, you don't know my boss. Um, have you ever seen a Christmas carol? And uh, my boss, Ebenezer Scrooge. I know it's not a right time of year, and I am Bob Cratchit, right? So that may, that's what you may be thinking. But that's, I know there are exceptions, right? But Paul is not asking you to suppress your intelligence or your talents or your gifts in the workplace. But he's rather saying, if your boss has asked you to do something and it doesn't go against the word of God, you need to do it. And, you know, I just, we just cannot forget that who we are drawing attention to, right? The question is, whom or what are we doing that to? Is it us or is it to Christ? So the next section shows us what a Christian worker should look like. So um, let's go back to Titus. I think it's honest here to acknowledge that um, there are things at work that, at work that um, may take all the discipline you can muster to do. Um, there are things that you're asked to do that are challenging and sometimes downright hard. You know, that usually will have to do with a person. If you've ever had to deliver a hard message to someone about their performance. If you've ever had to fire anybody, you know how difficult that can be. Or, um, you know, if you've ever had to sell steak knives door to door, you know how difficult that can be too. But, um, you know, Colossians kind of says, hey, you're supposed to actually work as if you're working for the Lord. But the question is, is well, what, what does a redeemed worker, what does a Christian worker look like? What are some of the attributes 
And so this next section, I've called it competencies for the workplace. We now have sort of five marks of, of what it's like, right? And the first one from verse 9 we get is we need to be submissive. And we've, we've already talked about this, but... So the understanding of this is means I, I need to get in line. I need to line up under my authority of my supervisor, whomever God has appointed. This is a military term, and... Um, Paul says, if you're willingly under the authority of your boss, your life should point back to the God who redeemed you. So my, my question this morning is, is, do I submit to my boss or is it begrudging submission? If you don't have a boss, you know, there, there is another relationship in your life in some way that you need to submit to. And you can ask yourself those questions. So he says you, you need to be well-pleasing. So if we go to sort of verse 9, it says they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So we're going to sort of look at these other, other four. So the next competency that sort of Paul describes is to be excellent or well-pleasing. He uses the word well-pleasing. Your work should please the person that assigned you that task. You know, it should be also well-pleasing to God, right? What is the standard? I mean, those of us that have kids, you know, if you're not right over them, right, and what are they, what's their standard, you know, when they're making the bed? Um, but as an employee, you think about this. If I know that my boss won't look at the detail, do I just do enough to get the job done? My grandfather used to say to me, that's good enough for government work. I didn't understand what he meant until now, but anyway. <laughs> so the next competency that uh, he talks about is not argumentative. I will admit this is the hardest place for me. This is the, the, the most challenging competency that I have. It's basically not answering back or speaking against. If your boss makes a decision, can you accept it? Or do you sort of work on something half-heartedly, secretly hoping that it's going to fail so that you can prove your boss wrong? And this is the challenge one. Do you leave a room with an answer and then grumble over what was decided at the water cooler? They still have water coolers where you are. I, I know there is some freedom in this, right? Some give and take where, I, where my supervisor really wants me to discuss and debate. But, but do you know when you cross the line to being just plain argumentative? For argument's sake, you argue. Or how about this one? Do you answer your boss's questions with a but? And number four is, is honest. Not, not pilfering is what Paul describes, not pilfering. Pilfering. In Acts 5.2, you don't have to turn there. You may know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell this plot of land to give it to actually for everyone to share. And this same word, they actually keep back a part of the price. So this word means to separate something out and lay it aside. I don't handle any cash in my work. But um, I can just imagine, you know, as I'm separating the bills and the cash register... You know, I leave out a 20 because I think I worked hard and my boss won't notice. Right? This, this uh, not pilfering just refers to basic cash register honesty. 
And the question I have is, do you work an honest day's work for an honest day's pay? You know, or do I have this sort of internal scale with what's right and what's fair and what I'm owed or what I think I deserve? All of those things, and Paul says, you need to be honest, not pilfering. And lastly, he says, you need to be loyal. That's letter E, you need to be loyal. Showing all good faith, trustworthy, reliable. In a world where we actually change companies very quickly, this loyalty thing is, is gone. I know there are some people who have worked the same place for a long time. Um, I know at my work, people work there forever. And, um, but this loyalty thing, I mean, it also is a heart condition. If you think about it, is am I going to give sort of ample evidence that when I'm asked to do something, I'm going to do it? Right? Or could my boss walk away and know that whatever I was given, I will complete it? Right? Or they always have to sort of be right on me because they know, well, you're not going to finish it. And um, so we've got these five. We've got submissive, we've got excellent, we've got not argumentative, honest, and loyal. And this morning, I just would want to ask you how would someone that you work with describe you? I hope they would describe you in some, in some fashion like those things. Now, if my boss were here this morning, I have a new boss, so she may not be here, but I wonder how she would describe me. Could she tell that I attended church on Sunday morning and that it affected how I worked Monday through Friday? Would they be surprised to know that you were a Christian? Or maybe they do know that you're a Christian, but they've lumped you in with all the rest of the bad examples of Christianity they've ever known. And some of you may be asking, well, well, why should it matter how I behave at work? I want to read you a quote from John MacArthur. You know, it does matter because you are an ambassador of Christ, whether you know it or not. If you identify as a Christian, in today's society, there may be a target on your back. But this is what John MacArthur said. He says, all the mass media evangelistic endeavors cannot overcome the equally massive display of ineffective negative testimony demonstrated by people who name the name of Christ and sin publicly and scandalously. My point four is the world is watching you, the watching world's view of you. What do they see about you? And where I get that from is when Paul says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is another in everything. Right? So he says, and I would just say, I'm at work 40 plus hours a week, and my work is included in the everything about my life. I cannot check my faith at the door and separate myself from my work. I'm bringing me with me. Right? I cannot think that what I do in my personal life, in, as in be, me being a Christian or my role in the church or anything like that, it should not affect how I work as a supervisor. I can't keep my faith and my work life separate. There's just no way. Now, you could be the type of employee that's more outspoken about your faith. I know at my work, there are some people with crosses and Bible verses all over their cube, Right? But you can't have all those Christian symbols and tell people that God is a saving God or that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins if your life is filled with sin. You know, the unbelieving world just simply won't believe it 
or they'll chalk you up with the rest of the crowd. There was a gentleman that was a German philosopher. He, was, he actually became a Christian. He was in the 19th century, and he said this. He says, you show me your redeemed life, and I may be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. And Paul says, he says, he says something about this adorning. He says that your work should adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything. You know, so I just think about, you know, what does this mean? What is he sort of getting at, right? He's already, he's talking about the older women and the younger women and the older men, and he comes across as his slaves, and he's very direct, right, and gives them what he wants them to do, right? So Paul is telling Titus to teach the slaves of the church that a Christian in the workplace, that it's submitting and excellent and not argumentative and honest and loyal will make God look attractive, so as you go about your day, you're seeking to please God in all that you do as an employee. I'm not a Greek scholar, and, and, but um, I found this interesting. This word adorn is, comes from the Greek word cosmeo, where we get the word cosmetics. My daughter is only six, so she doesn't have a lot of this yet. But she knows that makeup and cosmetics are designed to make one more beautiful or to highlight a specific attribute, whatever that happens to be, usually lip gloss. And Paul says that a Christian in the workplace will make God our Savior more attractive in everything. That living your life and how you go about your work for Christ will sort of arrange the precious jewels of your salvation so that you show its true beauty, so you'll highlight the beauty it is of Christ. Whether you like it or not, you are an example to the world. The world is watching you. Not so that you think, oh, I have to act a certain way so that my boss will knows and he thinks I'm a Christian and I have to be good and, you know, under this sort of legalistic microscope, your boss knows what motivates you by how you work. Right? The people at your work know you too. You cannot just sort of keep up a front all the time. Eventually it will come out. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you're honestly examining yourself and you look at this list and you think, I got some work to do. You know, I, I, um, I'm not submissive. I'm rather argumentative or, um, you know, I pad the expense account or I, I need to be more trustworthy. You know, I would say, how do I put off, you know, this? How do I put off what I have been and put on my salvation because people are watching and I don't think that people are watching, but I know they are, and I would encourage you to ask God to help you put off the sin that entangles you at your office and put on the opposite. Or, or maybe you're thinking, I want to make sure that we understand that, you know, where this comes from in light of Titus. He started with the doctrine, right? And he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he's not just saying just to try harder. You know, and that may be a question you may have. Oh, do I just need to try harder? Just need to sort of pull up the bootstraps and be better? You know, maybe I need a little self-help or, or, you know, a career coach and take these. This is what we would do at Chevron. We'd take these five competencies. We'd craft a development plan. We'd set some milestones in place. And then that way you could go be a good example to your boss. Right? It's a really elaborate plan. Is that what pa Paul is telling Titus to do? I, I don't think so, I, I, and I would be hard-pressed to tell you to just try harder. You don't have to turn here, but you can. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30 is sort of our solution for sort of wanting this sort of legalistic way of we just need to try harder. 
He says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So Jesus' solution is come to Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The last thing I have to share with you this morning is that um, I thought in my preparation and thought about, um, about Jonah, right? And he didn't want to actually go into the city of Nineveh and actually preach the word, repent, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't want to do that. And um, so I thought in terms of my boss, and this, this is salvation belongs to the Lord is point number four. And everyone, even your boss, is an object of the grace of God. You know, whether they are a Christian or not. Um, in 2013, there was a recent study, and 53% of employees feel they could do a better job than their manager. I know my boss just sits in meetings all day. I can't tell you what she does, but that's what she does. I'm confident. And I know I could do a better job than her at sitting in meetings and eating food. <laughs> and you may think the same way. So we probably don't need a survey to tell you that, right? So everyone I speak to at work has a story about their supervisor. You know, if you're in an office environment, you know, you may love your boss or you may find yourself praying for compassion for them because they did something you didn't like and they, or they said something you didn't like, right? Chances are there's some degree of conflict between you and your boss, right? And our view of our bosses gets clouded by this conflict, right? We forget, right? When there is some sort of dominant, subordinate relationship, we forget to see them as someone in need of a savior just like us. They too are gonna die one day and stand before God and give an account for everything they did they too need a substitute, just like us. They need Jesus in the fine that he paid on the cross, just like us. So your boss, as long as they're on this side of eternity, is in need of the saving grace of God. But we can't forget that God is the one who does the saving, right? Your role is to expose your boss to the gospel. In God's sovereignty, he has placed you in that workplace. Right? Your life is the conversation starter that, so that you can share the gospel. And my question to you, will you love your boss enough to share the gospel with them given the opportunity? Can you see that they need it just as bad as you do? You know, sometimes sharing the gospel just starts with compassion for those that are unsaved. In conclusion, I just want to encourage you that you need to live your life as to draw attention to the saving power of God demonstrated through you by living godly lives. You shouldn't be pointing to you. You need to point to the one who saved you. And godly character is the greatest evangelistic strategy in the workplace. I don't know of any other. Paul is not saying to the slaves that are in the Cretan church, you just need to try harder and just be better. You know, I won't say that. He is telling Titus that good works and godly lives that flow, think about this, what our whole sort of theme of the, of the book is that flow from sound doctrine will make the message of our Savior Jesus Christ more attractive even to our earthly masters or supervisors.
And I'll finish it with the same passage that, that Johnny read, because I think this is, you know, Paul is, he's got all of these groups of people, and he throws in slaves and masters and, and all of these things, and then he actually presents the gospel at the last part of the book. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. He gives them a hope that they can look to, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, this is what he's been talking about, living self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he sort of gives them the gospel, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And then how do we do this? Who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning and um, we thank you for this little book of Titus and for the opportunity to, to open it. And God, I don't know where everyone is at in their, in their jobs and their work and some I know, um, some of our teachers are off for the summer. But um, God, we would ask that you would just transform how we look at our work and that um, we would see with compassion our supervisors or bosses, whether they are a believer or not. But God, change us. Change us to be submissive. And change us to work excellently. And change us to actually be loyal and not pilfering and honest. And all of those things, God, that you actually command us to be so that we can have a message for the world. And that we would be an example of Christ and that we would point back to you in everything that we do. That it wouldn't be about us, God. And thank you for this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand one more time. Closing the song. Four thousand tongues to sing. <laughs>